Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that, <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to include all the pod courses? Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that we have four. We have first we have bite. One. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun and functional categories as we are honoring National Black History Month with our guest, Dr. Kia Noel Johnson, PhD, CCC, SLP, Chair of the Board of Directors for the National Black Association for Speech, Language, and Hearing. Today's episode is something we haven't covered before in First Bite. 
the lack of diversity in our field. So let me take you for a brief journey. I am, in case you haven't caught on by now, a Virginia gal by birth from a tiny hole in the wall that didn't even have a stoplight. Then one day I went to the big city for undergrad and a breathtaking sleepy city for grad school and then off to a quiet little town for my CF year. But it was a warm and kind one where everyone took care of everyone else. And I took for granted the grace and the kindness of the folks that I ran into. And that was until I moved to South Carolina. It was the first time that I was exposed to racial tensions as a professional. It was my first time encountering interpreters and colleagues who were afraid I would turn a patient or their loved ones into ice. Or the first time I had to be vouched for in order to establish buy-in and trust for minority families in the rural areas that I worked. I, I get it now. We aren't too far away from the I-95 corridor of shame lawsuit, also known as the Abbeville lawsuit. But y'all, it was, it was so eye-opening. It made me think about the lack of diversity in our field. And then my time serving on our state association made me contemplate it regularly and how we can work to address this issue. So I'm excited because today Dr. Kia is here to open our eyes and instill hope and joy and hopefully problem solve with us. So Dr. Kia, thank you for coming on, ma'am. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very happy to talk with you today. And this is a very exciting topic. Well, I'm, I'm glad we made our stars align because between your schedule and my schedule and then tiny humans, it is it is hard to be a, um, a working professional and a mom, just saying. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm there with you. And but you had a lot of people working on your behalf because people would come up and say, have you talked to the lady? Have you talked to her? She reached out. I appreciate your position. <laughs> well, I mean, I know a good idea when I got one. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I got to be honest, this is, um, I mean, working in South Carolina up until just recently, we only had two grad schools and that was it. And so it was, um, we have we have a bottleneck in our state for the need of professionals because we have so many people that want to be a speech pathologist, but there's limited options for schools and state. And then what I noticed as a clinical supervisor was that our the students that I have trained all look like me. And yeah. Okay, so squirrel, big squirrel. Um, state associations have the opportunity to apply for ASHA grants, right? So one of the ASHA grants that mm -hmm. I applied for years ago, and we did not get it, but I thought it was a really good idea. It was directly correlated to the Abbeville lawsuit. I applied for a grant so that we could take the funds and then um, you create brochures or literature about what speech pathologists and audiologists are, what we do professionally, and then go to the I-95 corridor because I was like, this is an opportunity to reach students that otherwise may not have ever heard of our profession. And yes. I mean, yes. I thought it was a really good idea, but like grant writing is not a strength. But <laughs> <So> <laughs> you have a good idea. Well, yes, it was start. the idea because I was like, okay, so how do we teach how do we teach students in low-income, historically minority school districts about our fields so that we can recruit from, from locations that need people 
there that understand the culture and the background. And so I have the idea. We, one day I hope to see that idea come to fruition, but apparently I need assistance with comma slices and um, verb conjugation. <laughs> but I, but the good thing though, I think if you look at um, initiatives that our association is doing, um, ASHA definitely recognizes that there is this issue as well. We are trying to tackle that, you know, granted it would be awesome to have, you know, grant funding to support it, but um, that's definitely a need and we're trying to tackle it, but we have a lot of, yes. a lot of work okay. to do. Okay. So I jumped the gun with like my impassioned, somebody out there help us write a grant um, and or fund us, but um, uh, <laughs> I did a double funding. Um, but how did you become a speech pathologist? How did you find out about our profession? So it's it's interesting you in, mentioned the comment about uh, not knowing what we do. And so I went to school. I was raised by um, a single mom. My dad was definitely in the picture, but my mom was a, a nurse um, in a leadership position at a hospital. I spent a lot of time in the hospitals, emergency rooms, labor and delivery floors, um, just you know, hanging out. Um, and so I went to college with the idea of being a neonatologist. Um, for anyone who needs to look that up, they handle the very, very sick babies that are born. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. So I went to college as a biology pre-med major. And that was my mom's dream, my dream. And quickly I realized that talking about um, photosynthesis and plants and you know, leaves. That was not what I wanted to do. I said, where are the patients? <laughs> where will I see patients? Um, so once I realized that that wouldn't happen until medical school, uh, freshman year, um, second semester freshman year, I decided to change my major. I looked, literally took the catalog and flipped through the catalog and said, ooh, communication disorders. I like to talk. Let's go work. <laughs> <laughs> I went to observe a session and to see that you could work with a child to improve their speech and or language and the kid have no idea but think that they're just playing, that was exciting to me. So at that point, I changed my ma major sophomore year, um, became a COMD major, and my mom, her first question was, so what is that? <laughs> and my mom's a nurse, you know, she works in a medical setting. Um, she had uh, no idea what it was. She told me I could still go to medical school. Um, and I think it wasn't until I got my PhD that she said, okay, I think you're okay. Medical school is not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> so here I am. you're one of the few that even went farther and got your PhD. So did you decide that if you're not going to do the MD, go all the way? <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So that's it. So in undergrad, we had a group, and I'll give a shout out to my um, mentor there, Paula Cochran, if she ever listens to this. She was really big on technology and innovation, and she brought a group of us together, and we would just sit there and talk about different technology and ideas and research. And so I did a research study in undergrad. I was a Ronald E. McNair Scholar. Um, that's a program that helps first-generation um, or low income or minorities, including women, get terminal degrees in their major. So I did a research study in undergrad, published it, um, presented it, um, and then went into grad school knowing that what I wanted to do was 
do research and actually train people who were going to become speech pathologists. I felt like I could have a greater impact on the profession if I went that route. So in my master's program, I did a thesis, the only student to do a thesis. And then um, <laughs> um, during, I literally went into my CF telling my CF um, employer that my, I'm gonna be here for a year. I'm going to look at programs, PhD programs, and after a year, I'm, I'm out. And I found myself at uh, Vanderbilt. Um, stuttering came about because I've always had an interest in stuttering because I found it fascinating and more nothing against language, nothing against Arctic and things like that. But stuttering seemed more intriguing to me and less um, clear cut. Um, every case, you know, I'm sure everyone will say this about all the areas, but for me, stuttering, every case was different. And you really had the chance to. If I could change something about that kid and their stuttering, I can impact their whole future. So, you know, I like adults who stutter. Um, I'm willing to work with them, teenagers, but something about working with kids who stutter, that has always been um, interesting for me and passionate. Um, a passionate area. Well, I am me. so grateful for you because we had we had Craig Coleman on a couple months ago talking about this one. Yes, yes, he's him. amazing. <laughs> but I was like, I'm so glad that you're here because this is not the thing that I do. My running joke is, give me a kiddo who stutters, and I guarantee I will increase the disfluency. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I feel I feel as though I would have a better impact on that if I were training. So every semester I go, okay, those are 35 more students that will go out into the world and be equipped to work with stuttering. <laughs> For me, I'm like, oh, all right, you hit two word utterances. I'm out. Congratulations. Like done. <laughs> Michelle Dawson's gone. But like, yeah, that's but See, this yes. is why we each have our own unique skill set and the good Lord put us there for a reason. So go to, yes. Yes. Oh my Definitely. goodness. This is awesome. Oh, okay. But, but I, you know, I know you you have a plan for this conversation, but um, in undergrad, I went to a predominantly white institution, Truman State University. We call ourselves the Harvard of the Midwest. Um, in the entire program, undergrad and grad, there were only two of us that would be considered in the category of minority. Um, there was um, there was myself, and then there was another African American undergraduate student. That was it for the entire program. Um, so it's not surprising to me that you can go into predominantly African-American communities yes. still now and run into people who are not necessarily uh, well-versed about what a speech pathologist does, although they could probably benefit from it, you know, depending on what their needs yes, are. We, my entire grad program, we had one male and that was one white male. And that was as diverse as my grad program got. And my undergrad program, everybody looked just like me, um, which yeah. is really interesting because, I mean, I, I am, my sister teases me um, when I give lectures, she, or I had, a, oh, oh my goodness, I had a picture done for something and she goes, honey, you're so white. If you didn't have red lipstick on, you would have blended into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you're not funny, but I am actually um, Cherokee descendant and um, uh, registered within the Padawamic tribe in Virginia. However, the Irish that is that is, that so is cool. but the Irish one bless the genes. I go from white to red and then back. I peel really well and then like yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, and I think um, I, I feel like our numbers are getting better, but there's still, you know, if you have a very, very, very low percentage, it's increasing, but it's still a very, very low percentage of, um, of, of at least Black students in our majors and our programs and in the profession. Yes, and, and I see that. And I see the process improvement, but I also see, I see the fear, especially on when I'm working with families that are lower socioeconomic status. Um, um, and I code switch because, I mean, I grew up in the middle of Nowheresville. So my, my thick redneck accent, for lack of a better phrase, and I know it's Appalachia in my bones, but um, if I have a family that um, is using a non-standard dialect, if I switch and let my vowels hang a little longer, or use a diphthong, um, I can physically see them relaxing. Yeah, it's it's um, and something that I have had conversations with colleagues about and even mentors about um, historically, when you think about African-Americans and how we have been, let's be honest, misused in health settings and research, we are always um, not always we typically can have that baggage when we go into situations of not knowing whether or not we can trust you and trust that you're going to have the, our best interest at heart. And um, even thinking about um, a lot of research that people would try to do or have done years ago, you know, pitting black children against white children or, you know, black people against white people and, you know, which who has the better intelligence and who has the better skills. We are very skeptical um, or can be skeptical, you know, when an outsider comes in. You um, and I had the sidebar so. conversation last time we talked when we, um, you know, I live right in downtown Columbia. So like, you know, we go hiking all over with our kids because two tiny boys should not be in a house all weekend, you know, um, and, and yeah. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Otherwise, mommy will lose her ins- her sanity. And let's be honest, <laughs> there's not much left. Um, yes. But um there's a statue to the father of, um, is it obstetrics? I think that's the correct word for it, obstetrics and gynecology here on the the state capitol. But like, if you do like scratch the surface of like what all happened underneath, it's like horror stories. And it's, but I mean, like we, you have the typical person is not aware of, but okay, we, we can. I was going to say, we can sidebar this, but like, <laughs> do you have to ask? No, I, so wait. So, so just to touch on that, I think um, it's, in, so for me, I feel like based on the stats, we know that there are not a lot of people of color in the profession, although we know there are a lot of people of color that may need services. So, um, you know, people may look at, you know, the statue or that situation and say, oh, that doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen now, but there still um, can be an underlying implicit bias that people may go into situations with. So I think it's good to have conversations like this so that we can, as an African-American woman or even a mom, I know that our children are being serviced by individuals that are thoughtful of that and thinking about that. And like you, you know, what can I do to make sure that I establish rapport and that you feel comfortable with me as a clinician coming into your house, working with your yes. family? 
And I've had to work really hard over the years to almost build acceptance that like, I'm, I'm here for the kid, you know, I'm going to advocate for you. I'm going to advocate for the kid. And that's, um, but like, you have to do that on like a family by family, daycare by daycare, early interventionist, service coordinator, physician, it's it, down to physicians, like one at a time, like just building trust. But, um, which is doubly hard because I'm an outsider. I mean, I'm not even from the state. So um, it's. And I remember, I remember in, in my master's, I went to Howard University for my master's and my mentor, um, Tommy Robinson there, he told me going into a career of research and going into this field, be mindful of whatever I do, make sure that it has the kid's best interest in heart, in mind, you know, from an African-American standpoint, if you're doing something research related or clinically related, that is not going to benefit the African-American child and is going to diminish them in any way, don't do it. And so I've always taken That's that with me. That's wise advice. Yeah. Yeah. How blessed are our stars that we've had good mentors before us? Yes, definitely. 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 And, um, and uh, something that I've been holding to tell you that, because um, we've had sidebar conversations, the first, the person who's um, recorded as being the first Black speech pathologist, she worked for a long time in Columbia, South Carolina. Wait, are you serious? Who? Yes, I am. I didn't want to tell you that. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's amazing. So, yeah. And Bosla did some research back, I think in 2013. Um, and um, they've, they've noted that Hallie Q. Brown is um, listed as being the first black speech language pathologist. They called her an elocu- elocutionist. Back then, she was a daughter of two former slaves, um, uh, moved to Canada from Pennsylvania through the Underground Railroad, and then she became a teacher in Columbia, South Carolina, um, and worked at some other schools there, and she worked with children and women to work on speech and speaking skills and literacy. Oh my God, that is so cool. I just got goosebumps. That is so awesome. She um she was a dean at Allen University. I guess that was an HBC. It's like right down yeah. the street. Yeah, so she was a dean there and she lived to be a hundred years old. Oh my stars, that's so cool. Yeah. I thought you would think that's exciting. Yes, that is. I, I, am, I have a friend I'm going to call as soon as we get done recording and be like, so... Check this out. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I feel like Dr. Jackie will appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Hallie Quinn Brown. Yeah. All right. So I have to ask you, because this is the perfect yeah. segue. Can you tell us the history of African-Americans' prevalence and growth within the world of speech-language pathology and audiology? Okay, that's a great question. Um, we have been doing a lot of discussion within in Basla to make sure that our current members and uh, students, uh, student members know about the history. Um, there have, there has always been a small percentage of African Americans in our profession. Um, but one thing I can tell you is that uh, back in the late seventies, there became um more discussion specifically with the black speech pathologists and audiologists in the profession really going to ASHA to say, 
we have some needs that are not necessarily being met by the association. Um, we have some needs that are specific to our communities, our black communities, um, our professionals, and the people we serve. And that's sort of how in Basla really got started um, because even when you think about the Office of Multicultural Affairs, that was birthed out of these discussions. Um, and, you know, they got together and I think it's the 78, they had some meetings before that time, but that's when they really decided, you know, we need our own association. We need our own group that really meets the needs of our black communities. And then um, in Basla was, was created and formed. And um, the whole, the goal has been to, of course, meet the needs of communities, but to grow the profession and well, to grow African-Americans in the profession. And um, that is, that's been happening. It's, you know, um, growing, but there's still, uh, still is a, a deficit there. Do you have the current percentages of what the, um, like, isn't it like 97% is Caucasian and female? Is that what it is off the top of my head? So I, so the 2018 numbers that ASHA reports, uh, and this is something, you know, for your listeners to know that ASHA does track this and report membership stats annually. And so the numbers, the latest numbers they have are from 2018. I'm sure 2019 is coming soon. But 8.2% uh, of ASHA members are considered a racial minority. Um, and when you think about how that compares to 27% of people who consider themselves racial minorities in the U.S. population, that's a huge mismatch. So think about it. ASHA membership, 8.2% can check a box to say that they are a racial minority, but almost 30% of the U.S. population can also check that same box. So we know from that alone, the chances of a non, the chances of a white person treating or working with a non-white person is high. Um, which means they have to have, you know, some, some training or education in that area of what do you do, how do you establish rapport, what are some cultural concerns or considerations that you need to make. But then if you think about, so 8.2% um, are racial minority, 5,000, 5,700 5, are African American. Out of almost 200,000 ASHA members, 5,700 are African American. That, that number, I mean, and then if you go into other populations, you know, if you think about um, uh, American Indian, 555. We don't even get into the thousands. Um, so the percentages of the diversity within the ASHA membership is low. Um, but the good thing, like I say, uh, said earlier, ASHA knows this and Basla knows this, and we're trying to change it. So something that in Basla has done before um, and was really successful last year in doing, we've gone started going into predominantly black high schools to talk to them about the this profession. is what I wanted to do it. This uh, is the grant. Yes. So so that's so okay, so last year we decided to go into three high schools in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's where we were having our convention and talk to them about the profession. Um, ASHA completely supported it. Um, they have materials that we can use. So we use their 
they have a, a video that is including members of ASHA who are um, racially diverse. Um, they provided us with print materials. And then we, as the face of Embosla, went into these high schools and talked to the students. I'm passionate about that and we're continuing that. Um, our convention is coming up in Houston. We're gonna do the same thing in Houston. I think to me going into high schools and middle schools, that's where we can make the difference. Because once you, as, as a professor I can tell you this, once the student gets to college, and realizes, wow, there's this great profession that I could go into, has a you know awesome job market, um, awesome future. It's too late, um, you know, time-wise or GPA-wise, um, how competitive it is to get into graduate school. It's too late. So we need these students to know from the time that you step foot on campus, your GPA starts, and this is a major and your goal is to get to graduate school, um, because what we find is not necessarily that we don't have students going into the major, we also have the issue of those students being competitive enough to get into the graduate programs. It's gotten so much harder. I mean, I, I feel like it was so much easier for me to get into grad school, you know, a long time ago, because I have a lot of gray hair, but like, as I need my roots touched up on Thursday this week, just saying. But like, I'm there with you. I agree. I, I graduated and I can say it. I'm okay with my CVs on the internet somewhere. Um, I finished undergrad in 2000. And I think I had like a 3.7 GPA um, in the major, maybe a 3.3 overall my GRE scores were nothing to put on the first front page of a newspaper. And I got into five out of seven schools That's that awesome. I applied to. But I tell my students now, if I had that record now, I definitely wouldn't, it would be much harder to get into graduate programs. And so um, the competitiveness is on a whole different okay, level. Okay. So I have, I have two thoughts. Um, one um, well, the first big thought is y'all should reach out to CSAP, the Council of State Association Presidents, because this is a issue that multiple state associations have looked at. Okay, we're seeing this. Um, we're seeing this area of need. How can we work to address it? And if ASHA already has the resources available, then if in Basla, am I saying that right? In Basla, yes. If Yes. I don't teach articophonology. My own child <laughs> is in artic therapy because ours are very tricksy. Apparently he's fluent in his Mandarin immersion school, but ours are still not his cup of tea. Um, but if um, in Basla already has the training and the skill set um, and Asha has the resources, if we were to work together with the Council of State Association presidents and the different states leaders, that would be huge because then in Bosla's membership and the individual state leaders could work together and like pick out career day volunteer opportunities. Um, because like, we're all, I mean, like we're always trying to set up volunteer opportunities for our state membership, but it's where and how do we use our volunteers, you know? And how cool would it be to even trickle it down? Oh, we could involve Nishla and get the Nishla students out there 
Oh, oh, I like where this is going. Oh, yes. And I um and I have to disclose I do wear two hats um, as chair of the board of directors for in Basla. I'm also the national advisor to NISLA as of January 1, 2020. Um, and I will say that NISLA has that on their radar as well. And I think, you know, tackling it together, collaborating together, I think that's where we can really make a difference. Um, we talked about, and Bob was talked about reaching out to CAFSID um, and sure that we tackle it. Dr. That Key, way. okay, so folks listening, CAFSID, can you translate CAFSID? It's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I knew you would ask me that. CAFSID, hold on. CAFSID. <laughs> CAFSID is the Council of Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Disorders. So if you think about most, um, all of the department chairs from the different programs get together there, they have an annual conference. Um, and we've thought about, and Bosla's talked about um, going to them and maybe saying, how can we, you know, share with you what we're doing and um, reach out through, through your programs to students, high school students or middle school students in your area to okay. tell them about your program. Well, I don't know about anybody in Capsid. That's your cup of tea, but I know all the folks over at CSAP, so I will happily <laughs> do an intro. We will, we will definitely be interested in that. That will be awesome. So connecting us to collaborating, that is a yes. great idea. Okay. Well, I will, <laughs> they're going to be like, well, what, what have you done this into now? <laughs> oh, I love this. Okay. All right. So all right, so let's go on to, um, can you please describe how an SLP, because most of our listeners are early interventionists or pediatrics, okay? But um, can you please describe how an SLP working in the world of early intervention needs to ethically assess and treat a child with a suspected language delay or impairment when a little one that we're working with has an African-American vernacular or resides with a family who speaks using a regional dialect. And I know here in South Carolina, um, there's been some great research on um, Gullah and Geechee. Um, where I'm from, back in Virginia, we have a regional dialect called Guinea. And that's um, Hessian French influence from actually the Revolutionary War, which is crazy to think that that, has sur that language has survived that long. Um, but yeah, help us. What are we... What are we supposed to do? I think, I think it's really important to do some homework on the front end before going into um, an evaluation or treatment, but then also not necessarily making assumptions. Because I think a lot of times uh, we're taught the textbook, you know, if they are from this culture, here's what you should expect them to do. And then you go into the household or you, um, you know, visit with the family, and that's not necessarily the case. So definitely making, doing some homework beforehand, researching the culture, and actually talking to someone from that culture would be very helpful. And I know sometimes that can make individuals uneasy, you know, of being the, you know, um, white person going up to someone saying, I want to have coffee to talk with you about culture. That is my world. I live in a state of awkwardness. And I was like, I have this idea. Let's do this podcast. And I was so worried people are going to think I was <laughs> so like, yeah. No, I, so when I talk to students, so um, here and at my previous institution, I've talked to students about cultural diversity. And I always say, I'd rather you be uncomfortable now 
so that you can be comfortable when you come into different situations. So you can read all you want about a culture, but it's awesome to get firsthand knowledge and have an opportunity to really just ask questions. And so definitely um, doing some homework beforehand, but going into the, the case, not necessarily making an assumption that that family is going to do every single thing that you have in your mind that they may do. Um, and it's always, and it's also okay to make mistakes. If um, I always see um, the clinician who, you know, may have said something inappropriate or did something inappropriate and they totally go red and apologize 5 million times. It's okay to make, we all make mistakes, apologize and keep it moving. <laughs> um, and something else. And when you are making your assessment and making, if you think that there may be something that's culturally related, checking it out first, because I've seen instances where African-American children um, are on caseloads or have diagnoses that are completely related to dialect and not a disorder. I think we're getting better of um, better at producing speech pathologists that understand the difference between a communication disorder and a communication difference. Although there's still a percentage of SLPs out there that did not get that training when they were in school. Um, like I think back when I was an undergrad, I don't remember getting um, a lot of in-depth training on what is a communication difference. I did in my, my grad program, but not necessarily an undergrad at that time. So you think about all the SLPs who are still practicing, who were educated before then, or um, coming out of school before then, they probably didn't get that training. So um, that's, those are things that I would, um, yeah, I would suggest. I have noticed that some of the newer edition of some of the standardized assessments, they actually include in the standardized assessments um, uh, dialectal variations like guidelines, which I like, I mean, okay, let me be honest, people that are listening, I believe that we can all concur that the um, uh, Pearson's production of the PLS-5 leaves a body wanting when it comes to um, validity, specificity, and sensitivity of uh, diagnoses. I highly encourage, in case you have not yet done it, please read Ash's position statement on the validity, specificity, and sensitivity of the PLS-5. However, one thing that they did do a good job of was at the beginning, they gave, um, if you actually go through and read the manual, and let's be honest, how many of us actually... Can you say that again? Can you say that again? Say read, that the again. Yeah, read the manual. Yeah, do it. Do it. Read the freaking manual. <laughs> Open the manual to the PLS-5, to the self yes. I don't remember which edition the self is on now. It's read the manual to self four. read or, the manual for the, is it Goldman Fristos on their third edition now? Um, and then, um, oh God, um, Arizona, the Arizona is another one. Read the manuals and they give you um, guidelines for, okay, this is standard English, but this is a dialectal variation that's okay. So do not score this as erroneous. And yes, and also, though, if you look in the manual and it doesn't give you that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use the test, but just know that when you get the results, you may need to be more cautious in giving a lot of weight to it, depending on 
what the results look like. Um, we just used, uh, so I do also do research. So stuttering is my area, um, but I'm uh, interested in bilingualism and stuttering. So I've done work with um, Spanish, English, Urdu and English, and also working with a colleague here, Dr. Mills on um, dialect. So children who speak um, African-American vernacular English compared to those who are more standard American English and looking at, at their speech disfluencies. And for the Urdu study, we used the self-screener and some students were failing it, some students were passing it. And these are students when you talk to them or do a language sample, there really is no issue. Um, and she, my student dissected the manual and she goes, Dr. Johnson, the sample, there are no students who represent anything close to it. And I said, exactly, that's that's the issue. But we're using it. Yes, if these students were in, you know, we have a huge Urdu um, English um, population here in, in Fort Bend County outside of Houston. If we're using that as a screener, you can have students that are failing it but the test wasn't created with them in mind. I see this is where everybody pretty much swallows the same. I'm grateful for the little world, little world. That I live in. That's right. and, and something else thinking back to the question of what to do um, with uh, what to think about. It's not even just about the speech or the language um, or dialect and things like that, but also thinking about culturally, we do things mm -hmm. differently. So if you going into working with the family, you know, we're, we need some conversation first, you know, how are you? How are things going? You know, how's the new year going? Uh, you know, we have, we have culturally, we like to have some some discussion or conversation establishing rapport before jumping right into it. You know, so. Uh, um, for example, I was having a conversation with someone else. We don't call elders by their first name. It's always Miss such and such. That, or, um, I, I was raised such. to do that. And I think that um, honestly, like my family didn't come from much. And I associate when I hear somebody call reference with a Miss first, I associate it with um, Southern and um, socioeconomic status in my head. Because I was, I, and okay. I was raised that everybody says miss, but I did that in Arizona one time with a lady who was old enough to be my great grandmother and she was briefing and I was setting the table up for it. And I said, now, miss, can I get you anything else, ma'am? And she said, if you ma'am me one more time, I'm going to beat you with this cane. And I said, oh my God, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Ma'am, I said it again. <laughs> And so, so okay. So let me um, let me add to that and help you with this. So in our culture, it doesn't have to do it doesn't have to do with SES um, and regional. But so like you would be my kids would I would instruct my kids to call you Miss Michelle. My children should never ever 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 call you Michelle. But um, I have friends who are from other cultures and I've gone in their household and it's the mm -hmm. same way, but they may say your aunt Michelle or um, auntie Michelle. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, to me, it's even more of a cultural thing. Like um, I've run into individuals who, you know, high SES and I, <laughs> they're older than me. I call them miss such and such. Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I just, I just assumed it was because we were, um, we grew up poor. <laughs> that's why we call everybody. Miss. Yeah. And so, 
so I think you like I think what you're talking to about is like down um here in Texas everyone you know says yes ma'am no ma'am and that was being from the north being from Chicago that was an um an adjustment for me because my students would say yes ma'am no ma'am and I'm like no I'm not that old don't don't ma'am me yet but don't call me Tia either. <laughs> I, I when somebody calls me um Mrs. Dawson, I'm like, do I look like my mother-in-law? Please just call me Miss Michelle. I mean, I'm not although I used to take offense when my students did it because I was like, I'm really not much older than them, but now I'm old enough to be their mothers and I'm like, eh, okay, maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so those are the things like to think about, especially if you're going into homes, you know, uh, and if you are not from that culture, just know that you're really going to need to establish rapport with that family and make sure that that family knows that you are there with the kids' best interest at heart. You are not there to judge or compare their life to your life because culturally that may look different and that's okay. And there's a difference between it being different versus being wrong. Yes. You know? Okay. And while you're in that light, in that vein, um, ladies and gentlemen listening, one thing that I have learned, regardless of any culture that you are working with, any home that you are working with, always pack a pair of socks with you. Because some yes. homes when you go into them, I mean, I always wear socks, but like some homes will ask you to take your shoes off either outside of the door or just inside the door. And if, I mean, I've had, I've had students that I like forgot to inform that and they're like, I didn't wear socks. And I'm like, you're going to need to wait in my car. <laughs> like, yeah. Here's my car keys. Go chill for an hour. I'll be back. But like, that's, um, and always, um, ask where, do not assume like in my family, when you walk in the door, you wash your hands in the kitchen sink, but some families let their dishes soak in the kitchen sink. And so you're going to need to go to the bathroom. So always ask when you walk in the door. Um, I like to wash my hands before I come in because germ warfare, we are battling germs, right? So leave your personal pathogens at the door, but ask where to go first. Yeah, I think it's a matter of what, what is the saying? When, when in Rome, do do as the Romans? Yeah. I'm not good at, I, at I know saying. What, but I know what you're getting yeah, at. If, if I go into someone's home, I want to be respectful of their home because it is their home. So, um, and not be offended if, um, if, if they ask you to do something, you know, within reason, they ask you to do something that is unusual to you. Like you said, taking off shoes. It's interesting you mentioned that because in our house, um, upstairs, you don't wear shoes and I will ask you to take your shoes off. And once I had an, um, an Asian family come in and he said, wait, you all take off shoes in your house? And I said, yeah. He said, their culture, they do it for, you know, deeper reasons. And I'm just like, I just don't want your dirty <laughs> shoes on my carpet. But um, but seeing that there, I think if, if we as a, as a society look at commonality versus differences, everything in the world will be yeah. so much better because we have so much, so many things in common um, that we just well, don't think about. I think, think we've about. just kind of lost the ability to be kind. Like, I mean, setting aside everything else, like really truthfully, like, and I know I am the rose color glasses. Like people pick on me about that. Like I am the eternal optimist, but my heart is filled with joy because I have seen true horrors. So like, I think 
if you have my colorful, creative past and the crazy ex-husband that I had, you look for the joy, you find it, and you don't let it go. So, like, but that's a conversation for adult beverages and cheese at a later point in time. <laughs> I can have that conversation later. Um, and I think what one thing I want to make sure your listeners think about. We always use the term cultural competence, but I don't know if we fully understand what that means. Um, and a lot of times people will say it's just being competent about culture. And I'm going, yeah, that just, that doesn't tell me what it means. And if we think about what it means, it talks about being eager to learn about someone's culture, um, taking the time out to to um, understand, value, respect, honor um, someone's differences. Um, And I think if we really worked on always looking for opportunities to improve our cultural competence when we're working with patients, that that will help. That will help because you'll come in contact with people from different cultures and you'll be ready because you have already built upon your cultural competence. See, I... I, all I can think of is the time that I failed miserably because I had never heard of the word um, halal. And w- I educated a family yeah. about the texture of the child, that the food that the child should be eating. And I was like, you know, like this. And I was working at a clinic and I pulled out a can of beanie weenies and handed it to the family. Oh and everybody <laughs> literally jumped up from the table and like was looking at me like I was the devil. And I was like, you know, like beanie weenies, this is the perfect consistency. And they're all screaming at me, halal, halal. And the mom didn't speak English. And the dad was a university PhD professor. And I'm standing there with this can of beanie weenies. Like, what just happened? And like, thank God. I had, my student at the time was from Atlanta. So she was cultured. And like, she goes, they're halal. I was like, honey, do you need water? What are you trying to tell me? So like I got cultured really quickly um, and then put it back on the shelf and pulled out the can of peas and carrots and gave it to the family. And they were like, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Yeah. 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 But that that elevated your culture. Real quick, rapid fire style. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, that was. Yeah, I can't. I still can't believe I did that. But, you know, we've learned we are all a work in progress. Yeah, here here at um, at UH uh, University of Houston, I tell um, I talk to the students every semester about culture, and I literally say, think about a culture that you are lacking knowledge in, or you feel uncomfortable around, and that's what I want you to focus on for the rest of the semester. Literally seeking out opportunities to engage with that culture, so that you can elevate your cultural competence. I think we need to like self-talk, like talking to yourself and saying, self, what area am I lacking in? Because we all, you know, say, I love everybody, world peace for everyone. Um, But I think if we really had some self-reflection, what culture or cultures do I feel uncomfortable with or not know a lot about? And now let me be active in trying to engage with that culture and not just getting on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not no. going to do it. I, I, the first, as soon as you say that, my immediate thought is um, the deaf culture, just because of the population that I saw. Yeah. 
Like that's my like gut. I like that. Okay, so our packed awesome motto for 2020 is the philosophy of less is more because like mm-hmm. I have a tendency to say yes to too many things on multiple fronts, oh, right? right? <laughs> and then also like we live in a everybody keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing, but like less is more, yeah. like less aftercare activities or after school activities so we can focus on that. But like this is one of those things that um, I think that would be awesome. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I mean, so, so if you were in this lecture, I would say, okay, deaf culture, what can you do between now and June to physically engage with that culture oh. and whatever that is, set a goal and make yes. it happen. Okay. I will do that. They, I, I'm immediately thinking of, um, they, they do uh, family get togethers where like everybody goes out to eat like once a month. And I've seen them, we've run into mm-hmm. them. And I think that's so cool because, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, go no, ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. just thinking, I'm, I'm adding this to my to-do list. This is not less is more, but this is joyful. So we're doing it. <laughs> and, and so if there's anyone out there who wants to, if they're like, you know, I want to learn more about African-American culture or Black culture, I always make the suggestion, no matter what your beliefs are, go to find a local black church and go, go visit. I mean, to me, uh, that is the one place that you can get a crash course on culture. Um, I ran into a lady at the um, grocery store who um, she lives, I hope she doesn't listen to this. Well, I'm not saying her name. She lives very close to my church. And she just randomly asked me what church I went to. I told her, she said, I live very close to that church. And she was white. And she said, but I have to ask, do you, I said, have to be black to come? <laughs> she goes, I don't know. I said, yeah, I was thinking that would be your question. And absolutely not. You do not have to be black. You just have to want to come to church. Um, and we get the question with that within Basla. Um, people ask the question, do I have to be black to be a part of Mbazla? And we, I tell people, think of us just like all the other multicultural constituency groups. You just have to have a passion, a desire, an interest in doing things to aid communication, communication services to, uh, to, to the black community or to black professionals. We have lots of members who are not African-American. Um, like I'm a part of the Hispanic caucus. I am not Hispanic, um, but I have an interest in the needs um, for Hispanic children. That's awesome. Um, so that's just something that just put out there. If any of your listeners are going, but wait, <laughs> that was going to be one of my questions because, like, I'm, I I did not know. I assumed incorrectly that it it was only for minorities and not for not minorities <laughs> right think about think about um in basla as the place you can go if you are definitely wanting 100 percent communication disorders knowledge relating to cultural diversity um when it comes to working with professionals working with students working with patients we are the place to come to because you think about our black students that are in these programs. Think about it, Michelle. They're usually sitting in a class, the only black student. 
they're usually having to face issues that non-Black students are not having to deal with. And they're usually having a professor who does not look like them and may not understand the challenges that they're facing. And Basel would be the place that we can help you with that. Like, we're the place to go to. If you want to increase your cultural competence in this profession, that's where the, we're, we're here. Okay. We have – I'm going to ask the question at the end, but your um, your conference is in Houston. When is it? It is April 15th through the 18th in Houston, Texas. We have a convention every spring, usually in April, every April. Um, and this would be, I think, our 42nd conference. I could be wrong on that. Somebody's probably going to email me after listening to this. Say, no, it's the 43rd. It's okay. Um, but we, and I'm going to, and I'm going to ask you again at the end, but like, that was like the perfect segue to be like, y'all, they have a massive conference and it's really amazing. And I've heard yes. that, I've heard that it's as much fun going to the conference as it is ASHA. So like. Yeah, so if you think about the way I like to explain it, um, so ASHA, you have your you have your workshops, your seminars, your posters, you have the open house on Friday. In Bosley, you have your workshops, your seminars, your posters, and and once that ends every night, <laughs> it is pure social networking. It's a great opportunity for mentorship. It's great for mentors who want to um, mentor students. Um, the ASHA board always is there. Um, board members are always present. It's an opportunity for students to really talk to the people who started it all. Like I remember my first in Basel convention was in Milwaukee. Um, I was able to actually talk to and meet the people that I read about or was was reading about um, in this field. Um, so like the pioneers who started the discussion about um, black dialect, you know, they were the ones that started in Basla and they were the ones coming to the convention and getting to meet them just two years, was it two years ago, last year, one of the pioneers, um, two of them, uh, Eugene Wiggins, Orlando Taylor, they were present. To be in their present gives me goosebumps. Um, so the Mbaza Convention is about uh, 400 attendees. It's definitely smaller than ASHA, more intimate, um, great networking opportunities nationwide. Um, we have a peer-reviewed call for papers that happens every December. Um, and um, uh, yeah, we're all, and no, you do not have to be Black to come. We also have a Praxis review course that happens um, simultaneously with the conference. So we have a lot of students who come to the convention solely to take our two-day practice course, two-day, three-day, two-and-a-half-day practice course. Oh, I don't know if I could sit through two-and-a-half days of a practice course, but I really do like the one-hour, like, <laughs> I like watching the practice games when, like, this, like, when you go to, like, state associations and they have, like, the students, like, from the different schools, like, do battle with yes, them. We have that. Yeah. That's. Yes. We have a practice bowl um, that happens, but um, for the practice course, so those would be the student. Our course is tailored to those individuals. We know statistically that um, people of color tend to not pass the practice the first time through. Really? And for that reason, some pioneers from Mbazla, um, uh, Kay Payne over at Howard University did some research in this, and um, decided that we need to develop a course 
that would make sure that our students, those that are repeating the Praxis exam because they didn't pass the first time, that they can come and get a, you know, they cover study skill, I mean, test taking skills, they cover um, reviewing topics that are covered on the Praxis, talking about the structure of the Praxis. And we have a lot of first time Praxis um, uh, test takers that will come and take it as well from every background, every university. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Okay. Well, that's my, my last question was how could someone get involved in, in Basla? And if you could talk a little bit about the student minority leadership program at ASHA, because that, okay, great. that's, um, so, and we have, we have five minutes because I have to give a time okay. for q and I'm like, I hate being the person that like is the timekeeper. I've never been a secretary on any board I volunteered on because I'm like, eh, typing and calculators. I'm trying. I'm trying. conversation between two SLPs, you know, we love to talk. <laughs> so it's always good. So for in Basla, definitely um, visit inbasla.org information about um, how to be a member is there information about our convention is there it happens again every year we also have scholarships posted if there are any students who oh, that's awesome. are in, yes um travel support there um, we also have affiliates so think of affiliates as chapters in some of our bigger cities um there are affiliates that you can um become a member and then connect with that affiliate to serve that specific community. Um, so definitely um, at the ASHA convention, we always have a booth and we always, uh, for the last three years, have been having um, mixers at the ASHA convention. So always look for in Basla at the ASHA convention. No, you don't have to be a member to come to the mixer as well. Um, and then for the convention, if you have some research that you want to share, with Basla, call for papers always happens in November, December-ish. Um, no, I'm sorry, I think it opens in September and closes about December. So consider submitting and presenting. The Minority Student Leadership Program, um, shout out to class of 2006. I was uh, in the class of 2006. It is a great program through ASHA with the purpose of developing leaders that are of racial minority groups. Um, and you apply, I believe, in April or the spring, and it uh, the program basically supports you coming to the ASHA convention, and you get a behind-the-scenes view of the different committees, um, different committee meetings. Um, you get an opportunity to give speeches before professional leaders within ASHA that are giving you input on your presentation skills, your ability to take a topic and develop a talk from it. It really hones in on developing your leadership so that when you become a professional within the association, you would be ready to go into some of those leadership roles. So I started out in um, 2006, um, MSLP since that time. I've been on the board for Mbosla, now chair of the board of Mbosla, and now um, on the ASHA board of directors uh, as the national advisor to NISLA. So the, the program is, is competitive, but it's definitely, definitely worth it. Okay, so two shameless plugs. One, um, the end of the month, we have Nishla coming. Um, I, heard. I know, I am so excited. And and it's 
and I feel really strongly about this because we've always struggled as state associations to get students involved. Mm-hmm. And so um, when Nishla came to CSAP, that blew everyone's mind that here come in all these incredibly well-spoken students. So yes. and a couple of them, I think, had gone through um, the student minority leadership program. And so, that so was that that's the future of our that's the future of ASHA. So, yeah. you know, I I think about when I work with students within um, in Basla, students in my university, and now having the opportunity to work with the Nisla students, I feel like that's my way of giving back to the profession. Yes, and that's okay. So I say this on how many episodes, but y'all. If you are not already a clinical supervisor, please seriously consider doing it. Yeah. Because we need we need clinical supervisors from all walks of life that are willing to give of their time and their energy. I view it as part of my tithe. Um like yes. wholeheartedly because that's our future. Those students treat my babies treat my grandparents yeah. and will one day treat me because yeah. I know the crazies running my family. So like, I figure I got about 50 years before dementia. <laughs> so like, listening will have me just slip me a little red wine every once in a while. On Friday <laughs> but, but, um, that's in my little nursing home. I can already see the nursing home. it's going to be great. Um, but that's, that's just it pay it forward. And, and my other shameless plug, um, uh, I did, um, the, uh, Asha leadership program a lifetime ago, it feels like. And our, right. our, my project, what I went in with is not what I ended with. Cause I went in on scope of practice encroachment, but, um, we had a tragedy happen in Charleston and I'm not sure if anybody's listening to it, but, um, several years ago, a, um, a boy went into Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and committed a um, heinous crime. And we lost nine members of our state. One of those was Sharonda Coleman Singleton. And um, she lost her life um, in the middle of a Wednesday night Bible study. And she was an outstanding speech language pathologist yeah. that worked in the public schools and was a, um, uh, a coach. So our state association created something called the Sharonda Coleman Single um, Sharonda Coleman Singleton Memorial Scholarship. I'm trying not to cry, so if I'm messing up the name, please forgive no, it's me. Okay. Um, yeah. No. It's okay. Um, and it is designed for a um, a minority student that um, has um, good grades, is a student athlete, and active in their church because we modeled it on her life so that we could carry her life forward. And we have given away, I think it's four scholarships. We give away one every February. Um, And it's to a speech pathology major here in the Palmetto State. So um, if you're listening and you fit the requirements, we would love for you to apply and to to put more good in the world. So, um, yeah, I'm trying really hard not to cry. But um, can I I tell you something that may may, um, make you smile? She's actually, she, um, Sharonda Coleman Singleton was my sorority sister. She Are you sorority. Yeah. She oh. was, and I'll, she was an Alpha Cup Alpha woman. Um, mm-hmm. and so um, I think that's really, and, you know, that plus being an SLP, I think that's really 
you know, good to, to have that. I had no idea. I, I never knew her. I mean, I was just, I was volunteering on our board. Um, and when all of this happened and I was like, let's set up, let's set up a memorial run. So we do the memorial run every October and we've made it virtual that way. Um, there's no overhead folks can contribute and all of the money goes directly to the scholarship. And, um, we, uh, um, her undergrad, um, and grad programs and alumni and colleagues. And it's just really cool to see it go right back to the students. Um, yeah. Actually, um, the kicker for SC State was a recipient a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, oh my goodness, everybody was all excited that it was a man. We were like, yes. <laughs> that is, that's right. Well, if there's uh, anything that we can do um, and Basel can do to support that, just, you know, definitely uh, let us know. Um, yeah. And awesome. I hope that we can get you to an Embossed Convention one day. Oh man, I will. I will. <laughs> let me save my pennies. I'm. I, I. I. In the future, yes. For 2020, my um, no. one financial goal is to sit for the BCSS exam. Yes. And, um, I'm sinking every penny into studying cranial nerves because you know what? On old Olympus towering tops, a Finn and German viewed some hops only gets you so far and that does not make you pass a test. So like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yes, after that, after I get that, after I earn that, then honey, I am game on. But um, <laughs> yes, Lord, I can learn more than that. Ah, uh, uh, this is great. Kia, thank you so much. Okay, la real quick before we switch to questions, because we are so far over. Um, April 6th through 8th, is that what you no, said? April 15th, 15th, 15th to the, I'm um, sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> April 15th through the 18th in Houston, Texas, and registration is open, um, and we'll be at the Omni Houston Hotel in Houston, Texas. Beautiful. Awesome. Hot stuff. Okay. Well, let me switch over to questions and hold tight real okay. quick. Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.